You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jim, great to have you back on Real Vision. Thank you, Jack. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm doing well. Nice. Well, you were on before um, with Jim Grant making macro calls because you come from the hedge fund world. Um, but now you're actually the CEO um, of the only rare earths uh, miner and producer of concentrate uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so I guess one of the questions I want to ask you in this conversation is how did that happen? Sure. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that you never expect in life. It was it was a a big turn, so to speak. But as as I've I've traditionally viewed myself to be a contrarian investor, uh, you never know what uh, what uh, opportunity will present itself, uh, particularly in a in a regime that we're in now with uh, ubiquitous uh, money printing out there. Um, and so. We we came across MP at my investment firm JHL Capital Group back in it was actually back in late 2014. Um, we were we had been short a lot of energy um, and w- with a with sort of a view that OPEC uh, was breaking and that we were transitioning from a period where oil in general was sort of cyclically and secularly challenged and so. We'd gone from a an OPEC period where there was a price floor to the expectation that with shale and all of the supply and the reduction of demand that there'd be a price ceiling, and so um, you know that was a sort of a very successful short for us. And of course, we we thought we'd follow up in early '15 with with looking through the wreckage um, and trying to find the the babies with the bathwater of the energy collapse, kind of in early '15. If if you recall the there were a lot of um, distressed credits. And so I had remembered the Mollycorp IPO and lo and behold, the, the bonds were, uh, their secured bonds were trading at a substantial discount. We can kind of get into the, the cash, but that's originally how I came across it. I had no expectation of, of you know, being in, in this business until literally early 15. And even then, you know, I thought it was going to be a, a passing trade, so to speak. Um, but then chaos ensued. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos ensued, and it's it's ended up um, quite well. You uh, recently went uh, public uh, via a yes. SPAC. That deal uh, closed in November. Um, I, I want to get into that. Yeah, I'll tell you, Jack. It was it's you know it's we're still kind of very excited as a team. It's it's a surreal, uh, amazing, and very humbling experience to stand out there and. You know, I guess that was on the bucket list to ring the bell, right? And, yeah, and just I, stand I out there and see your logo and and all of that kind of stuff. So anyway, we can talk about that. But yeah, it's it's been exciting. It's been an exciting um, uh, year. Uh, you know, all things considered, aside yeah. in the world, it's for for MP. It's been a great year. Yeah, I'm sure. Let let's get into uh, the mine because you say you, you owned these bonds and the the company uh, Molly Corp that owned. Um, the uh, Mountain Pass mine, um, th- that company went bankrupt and you ended up with the, uh, w- with the property. Now, you know, sometimes you don't want a company to go bankrupt, but in this case, you ended up with sort of the, the crown jewels. Uh, what can you tell us about these crown jewels? So when we initially built our position, we actually didn't want it to go bankrupt. Apollo was behind us in the convert. And we thought that they would cram us, and you know, we our our basis was kind of roughly over a period of time in the you know forty cents on the dollar, 
And we kind of thought, oh, Apollo will cram us. We'll get 70 or 80 cents, and but it'll be you know a no brainer, and and we'll move on. Um, and and obviously, what what we learned though, as as we dug in, um, is and obviously Apollo, you know, sort of ended up get things deteriorated and got much worse, and so they ended the converts ended up getting wiped, and and our bonds were really um, you know in the in the key position. Um, and what we learned, I, I jokingly say that I made the mistake of doing a significant amount of due diligence and visiting, actually visiting the asset during the bankruptcy. And I was just blown away by the scale of the, of the asset, how remarkable it is. And, and this really is, you know, if you see it and you can see some great videos on our website, obviously Real Vision did a pretty amazing yep. video out there. I'm sure we'll get into that, but, but yeah. it, it's really, it's a, it's a remarkable asset, a lot of invested capital. When we were in there, the way to think about it is really Molly Corp, the predecessor entity that went bankrupt, it was essentially a, a stock promotion. Um, it was a story. Uh, uh, it was sort of a story and a stock promotion sitting on top of what is actually a really incredible asset. But at the time they did their IPO, you know, they did their IPO in 2010 uh, to do this sort of state of the art, environmentally friendly processing facility. And we can kind of talk about why that's relevant with, with rare earths. But think about the fact that in 2010, when that IPO happened, the Model S wasn't even on the road. Right. It, yeah. the, the, the idea that the world would electrify was a decade ahead of its time. And so, as you may have heard me say, I like to kind of say it was sort of the Internet 1.0 of this mm -hmm. story. And so we had the opportunity um, to kind of you know, see this asset. And I believe we're sort of on the precipice of the 2.0 of the story, which is, you know, very typically very rewarding and sustainable. Um, and so I guess sustainable pun intended. Yeah, absolutely. So so Molly Corp, uh, they. Uh, went public in 2010, which was the uh, just as the commodities boom was sort of ending, and so we, it's been a very bad um, 10 years. And I, I think uh, the consensus view that's kind of emerging is that the next 10 years are going to be good for, for commodities generally. Um, but then we have rare earths um, specifically, which has a whole bunch of applications. It's used in smartphones, catalytic converters, but I think specifically the uh, it, it's used in electric vehicles and magnets. Um, mm -hmm. So can you? Can you tell us about specifically what elements uh, you mine and how that oriented towards sort of the magnet business? Sure. And and by the way, Jack, if, if, with respect to commodities, just because I can't help myself, I, I did sure. have a, a hat that I wore for many years as a hedge fund manager. With respect to commodities, I mean, ultimately, that's a supply and demand business, no different than, than real estate or stocks or whatever, right? It's We're all about supply and demand in the markets. And I'm extraordinarily bullish uh, certain commodities in, in the coming decade because I believe that's sort of the the new bull market. You know, obviously we have the backdrop of of uh, significant monetary easing, and and if you kind of look at it, that, that looks like it's it's here for as far as the the eye can see, as far as money printing and low interest rates, and you never know, you can wake up to a different reality tomorrow. But if you think about the the coming years, we're really gonna we're likely gonna have a multi-trillion dollar transformation in our global economy uh, as we go from sort of what I would call the analog world, the fossil fuel-based world, to an electrified world where we're going to really electrify uh, the auto, uh, whether it's wind turbines, drones, robots, all of those those sort of use cases that'll be out there uh, across transportation and HVAC and you know you name it. And so I think that the the key, if you want to position yourself sort of in the in the commodities landscape, is to really Think about the materials that'll be sort of most levered to that, and and you know there's lots of reports and we can kind of go through some of them if you like. But 
the key thing is to think about um, with respect to NDPR, which is our 90 plus percent sort of driver of revenue uh, product. The, the key thing with NDPR and rare earths in general is that mining is only 10% of the cost structure. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really a chemical separations process. And it's really, think of it as sort of a big specialty material or big specialty chemical. Uh, and so when you think about that compared to maybe something like lithium or shale oil, where you have a sort of a very quick response time to get supply onto the market in rare earths and then less so, but importantly in nickel or copper, some of the other EV commodities, um, you, you have sort of this longer response time, this, this um, more challenge to get supply to market. And so I think we're, we're headed into this period where we're going to see an, a, a just dramatic acceleration of, of demand. And as I always say, death taxes and cycles, right? That's what yep, drives, yep. that's what drives a cycle is that people sort of slap a number as to what will bring on new supply. And, and usually it's sort of reflexive both ways. And so I think that to get the supply that we need, we're going to see substantially higher prices across a number of commodities. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are a lot of compelling reasons, as you just said, for why uh, we're going to have a good year for commo- good decade for commodities. Um, I think, though, that even even if we don't, even if, you know, the because the commodity thesis is tied up to the sort of reflation um, money printing, like even if the, the money printers go on all night and the Fed can't create inflation, I still think electrification is a secular trend that will proceed with or without um, a reflation uh, narrative. And what, what I was really interested in when I was reading your uh, presentation for MP Materials was that, you know, we don't know which car company is going to be dominant. Could be Tesla could be workhorse. Tesla definitely has a you know a little bit of a leg up. It could be one of the legacy auto automakers, and we don't know what technology. It could be lithium batteries. It could be you know, lithium cobalt. It could be all these different commodities. It could be hydrogen fuel cells. What uh, Nikola is doing. Um, what Toyota I think is dip their toe in. So we we don't know. But all of those all of those different technologies use NDPR and they use those magnets. So what can you tell me about that? And also, can you please pronounce uh, NDPR, because I was having a hard time with it. Sure, neodymium, praseodymium, and they—they're okay. actually two separate rare earths that that are right next to each other. Uh, so, so you t- they typically come together. You you sell them as as one in most cases. Uh, and um, but but th- it's actually a great point, and it's uh, the sort of the, the what you just laid out, which is why I'm so excited about this opportunity. And and obviously as as a investor uh, historically, but now as an operator, uh, you know, I understand that there are, when you're, when you're out there in the real world, you have to execute. But if, if I look at our opportunity in front of us, we really do view our company, MP Materials, um, as a real picks and shovels play on this boom. Um, it, it, you know, as you said, who knows? I mean, there's so many EV makers out there and maybe we'll talk about SPACs and, and a lot of them are coming to market and there'll be some successes, there'll be failures. Um, and there's, te- there's competitive risk there. And then the battery technology, uh, is going to evolve the, the mix of, of lithium and some of the other commodities and, and, or will it be solid state or capacitors or hydrogen, um, all of these technologies, but, but it's pretty well settled that, that there'll be a magnet, right? That no matter how mm-hmm. the power gets there, there'll be a rare earth magnet. That'll be what causes the motion. And so throughout history, we've seen these, these opportunities when you sort of are on the precipice of a big boom. Um, it's, it's nice to play the very levered companies to that boom that are high risk if you get them right. 
But along with that boom, sort of a very surefire way to do it is to find the, the, you know, if it was the 19th century gold rush where the term came from, it was the Mm. picks and shovels play. You know, who sold the Levi's? Who sold the picks? Who sold the shovels? Um, Or if it was in the 60s and Intel or through to the 80s, Intel inside, um, you see these cases throughout history where there's an opportunity to really build a great platform, a great company. And that's what we're about. We think we have this very strategic asset. Um, and we want to take advantage of that strategic asset to build a great, you know, transformational company over time. And it's very aspirational. We, we make clear that this is a, you know, this is a long-term process. Um, we want to make sure that we, we sort of manage expectations and, and make sure people know that, that this will take a long time to build a great company, but we're on our way. And anyway, we're really excited about it. We feel like we're on the ground floor of, of a multi-trillion dollar economic transformation. Uh, and so with a great platform. Um, and 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 as 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 is probably out there known, we're we're cash flow positive today, mm-hmm. uh, just yeah. in the early stages. And yeah, so I was about to bring that up um, because you say, oh, we're, we are this ambitious company. We're looking forward, and all of that's true. You're at stage one now. I want to talk about stage two and stage three. But I might add to to your brethren in the SPAC community, you are essentially a, a mature uh, company in that you are um, cash flow positive. You have revenue. You have a business plan um, that works. It's not just an idea on paper. You, you have a mine and you extract that and, and then you process it. Um, but the in, the in terms of the latter stages of turning that rare earth concentrates into um, like NDPR and refining that, that's where China. That's what China uh, is does, right? Yeah, of course. And and I know you know this, but just in, um, as you know, we're our, we're an NYSE listed company, our ticker's MP, that we we have de-spacked. And so regardless of our lineage, whether we spacked or IPO'd, obviously the goal is to execute now and and um and so we're 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 no longer that. Yeah. But but I have yeah. I think it's Correct. A, thanks a for great, me, yeah. yeah, no, no, of course. And it's a great conversation topic. Um, we can have a lot of fun with that. But to answer your question, we're really if you go back, I'll, I'll rewind a bit. Uh we we took over after, in 2015, the the whole thing went into free fall. As I was mentioning earlier about um, how we had people behind us in the bond in the bonds, and um, we we recognized that the the promotion that was the predecessor entity, Molly Corp, um, that things were a lot worse under the hood when we when we dug in, and and really not a single strategic or financial buyer showed up to to buy this thing in bankruptcy. Um, and and as we dug in, we came up with a plan. We felt like we could actually rebuild, uh, turn around this asset, uh, and rebuild it in multiple stages. And you know, it does. It, it, you can't move a multi-billion-dollar supply chain overnight. So we had to have sort of a, a, a long-term way of doing this. And I was very focused at the time on making sure that that um, I was not throwing any good money after bad uh, with with my investors. And so we were willing to fight through bankruptcy get control of the asset, but we wanted to make sure that we had a plan that from day one, uh, we understood that we were extremely resource constrained. Um, you know, we were sort of at death's door really as a company, um, you know, throughout the bankruptcy before we existed. And then as we took control, so as we took control, we had eight employees, it was in care maintenance. We relaunched it. The first stage of the relaunch was to basically rebuild every, you know, rebuild, when I say rebuild, I don't mean physically, I mean, rebuild a company. You know, we had no accounting system because the it was a part of Mollycorp and, and another piece of Mollycorp went with, you know, went with another entity. Uh, and so we had this asset with eight people that was shut down. 
no accounting infrastructure, nothing. I mean, we really built. Sorry, a- sorry to interrupt, but did you did you have any did, did Molly Corp have any debt? Uh, oh well, obviously did because it was the yes. debt was you. Yeah, the debt was we were the largest creditor in the bankruptcy. And so we originally credit bid for the mineral rights um, and then bought the rest of the assets out of bankruptcy. Um, and the mineral rights, that was actually a key thing. And I'm pretty sure, and, 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 and maybe one day it'd be fun to write a case study about this. I'm pretty sure that mineral rights have never before been separated from fee simple real estate in bankruptcy. You know, obviously mineral rights are, are in energy or across, you know, across uh, uh, minerals around the country. It's pretty well settled law that the mineral rights can trade separately from the real estate. And there's lots of transactions around that. Um, but, but the idea that this was an asset sitting in bankruptcy, we credit bid. So we were the largest creditor, but we were still forming our plan. And so I didn't want to take control of, a, you know, a nearly $2 billion busted chemical plant at the time without a plan. Um, and so uh, that wouldn't have been a good idea. Uh, and so First, we credit bid for the mineral rights. So we, I, I think um, it was very unexpected that we were able to do this, but there's really no legal reason why, because it is an asset. Um, so the judge approved it. Obviously, the insurance companies at the time weren't very happy. Uh, there was a lot of litigation, but but we got those. And then we put together a, a, a plan and and were able to uh, form a new company with, a, with a, a partner in China that gave us access to the Chinese market. And and you know, I think there were there were some that criticized us. You know, how could you take this iconic asset and have a partner um, over there? But the, the reality is, is Tesla, Apple, GM, you name it, they buy their magnets in China. And so, if we want to mm. sell to Tesla, Apple, GM, we we were going to have to have access to that market until we could move the supply chain over here over time. And so, we got the partner. We did our stage one, which basically meant create all the ground floor infrastructure of the company. Uh, accounting engineers you name it we we started hiring uh and we we you know we we sort of built from scratch and so we we made a lot of changes to the to the operation we can kind of talk about some of the changes that we were able to to make to to fix the the frankly the if i may say the total disaster that that was molly Corp, um operationally not just capital structure wise and so yeah we re, we we did that and so in our, our phase one is we we take the rare earths we turn it into a rare earth concentrate so think of it as we take rock out of the ground that's seven or eight percent rare earth on average you know it, it ranges and you kind of mix it up which by the way is it's very good right seven to eight percent is is world class for absolutely that's world class you there's we think it's the best rare earth ore body in the world many of the chinese producers are kind of one or two percent um, there's a handful of other projects in the U.S. that are sometimes mentioned that are pre-feasibility, not funded, and those are kind of at best one percent. Some are under, maybe some approach one one point something mm-hmm. percent. And so when you think about the economics of the business, you know, I, I use this analogy: if if it were oil, we would be like Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, we've got sort of a very low cost of production and 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 a lot of scale. So anyway, we take this this very high quality rock turn it into a very concentrated product. Think of it as like a big bag of sand that is six, approximately 60% rare earth. We currently sell that to China, just you know, doing that. And by the way, just doing that is, is a significant effort. Um, you know, we have north of 270 employees now. Um, you know, it's a pretty big operation, uh, but doing that, and you know, we just put out numbers uh, recently, um, we're, we're cash flow positive, EBITDA positive, cash flow positive. You can, you know, people can kind of look up all those metrics. And uh, uh, no debt on your balance sheet, which is which is right. why I brought up like, did you 
still have debt when you acquired it, but it sounds uh, like yes. you were, you were born anew. Um, what question? By the way, I, that's what, a so really important point. It's just when you're in a commodity business, uh, I'm a big believer in capital structure matters, right? That's, you know, it's the Michael Milken school of capital structure and um, your capital structure really needs to be appropriate for the business that you're in. And so what's, what's great about our company um, is we have north of $500 million of, of cash on the balance sheet and, and no debt. We've got some forward product sales um, and that's it. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a great position to be in to have a, a profitable cash flow positive business and a fortress balance sheet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So you talked about you have this 7.8% uh, grade ore, you have uh, 800,000 metric tons in the ground, roughly or expected, um, you, you're basically sitting on the, the Saudi Arabia of rare earths. And as, as um, you said before, you know, you are in California, so your, your mine is up to the highest standard. And Molycorp did invest a ton of money in the plant. Um, so you basically, you've inherited this, uh, great, uh, this, this great asset. Um, can you describe how you plan on delivering? Because uh, like I was reading through some of Mollycorp's financial statements, and they too were, you know, they too were hopeful. They had this plan about Operation Phoenix, was it called? Uh-huh. Project you know, Phoenix. So, so Operation yes. Phoenix, Operation Phoenix, did not go well. Um, like, how are, how is MP going to sort of rise from the ashes? You know, to, to bring this uh, metaphor to close. It's a great question. So let's take it by the numbers. So let's look at the data. Um, Mollycorp went public in 2010, and, and by the way, the backdrop here is the 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 world-class nature of the ore body and the site that's known it, it it had historically been operating for decades and profitably it was ultimately a subsidiary of chevron um and then it was sold to private equity uh, people it was shut down due to chinese competition and some challenges over over the years it was sold to some financial people um they took it public as molly corp and the, the goal as molly corp in 2010 was they were going to build a brand new very scaled state-of-the-art facility I think they said it was going to cost, you know, X. It ended up costing 1.7 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but their vision was to sort of do this, this, you know, and we can kind of talk about all the environmental attributes. But, yeah, yeah. but um, so anyway, they they stated at the time of their IPO that they were going to produce approximately that their goal when they built, and it was going to take them several years to obviously build. It took them, you know, five, and they never did it right. But they said they were going to build it. I think in three years. And that they were going to produce 19,000, I think it was 19,050 tons of REO, metric tons of REO. So um, they never achieved that. They produced 12,000 tons in their best period uh, annualized run rate. And they were, they were, they had, you know, their uptime was in the 50s. So they were having constant shutdowns and operational challenges due to a number of issues on the site related to failure in their operational approach and in their construction process. And they never got the site working well. And their best annualized period was producing 12,000 tons. So today, MP, our latest quarter annualized is approximately 38,000. So north of 3.2 times wow. the, the material. And so, by the way, and just to think about the power of cycles, when the street did their, you know, 
exciting initiations post the Molly Corp IPO, what I call sort of electrification, you know, 1.0. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the street target was 20,000 tons. And at one point, you know, it was a prior commodities boom. Uh, Molly Corp had a $6 billion enterprise value before they even built the site. Um, and so, wow. you know, you just think about that. Uh, and so with a 20,000 target, we're doing 38,000 today. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and we, you know, we, you know, obviously we've, we've said, we don't think that that's, you know, sort of the extent of, of what we'll be able to do. We're, we're constantly pushing um, um, to do better. And so what, what I would say is we believe over the last three years, we've really built the infrastructure of this company from scratch. We've turned around what was a busted chemical plant um, to be sort of a best of breed operator at low cost and made it profitable even in an early stage. And so I think we've earned the the right to say that we're real operators. Uh, we're, we're Turner, you know, we turned around a challenged asset. And so we have executed. And so I'm historically, I, I get that I'm skeptical of any kind of new construction. What I would say to people though, is, is to remember the, the assets on site are built and actually they, they spare no expense. They built a remarkable facility. Um, they just made some mistakes um, in the workflow. We can talk about that, but, but there was 1.7 billion invested in this facility, which we now have. And so when we talk about our next stage, so our next stage is taking the concentrated product uh, to making separated rare earths, the NDPR that you will mm-hmm. see. We're, maybe Jack, I should quiz you, see if you can, if you can uh, pronounce it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of my things. It's, you know, I was going through your reports last night and I'm like, okay, I, I get this. I, I'm really interested in this. But when I looked up NDPR, I'm like, I don't know. So it's, it, we'll see at the, at the end, maybe, maybe you can uh, make it easy for me. Neodymium praseodymium. Say it fast three times. Neodymium praseodymium. There we go. Fantastic. Yeah, got it. But the key thing with our stage two is that we're most of the existing assets on site for the stage two piece of it worked very well. The, the NDPR separation is mass balanced. If you look on our, on our website and you see a picture, we have a great drone shot of our, of our site and kind of along the right side of the picture, you see this building that looks like it's three football fields long. That's our NDPR separation. And that worked perfectly well. Um, even under Molly Corp. And so our expectation is that the, the, the NDPR separation piece of that will work very well. You know, obviously in the real world, there are always startup challenges, but, but this is not a greenfield. This is really an optimization project. And, and in the backdrop of that, we have a cash flow positive business that obviously mm-hmm. is price-wise very levered to, to, you know, some exciting trends as we've discussed. Definitely. Um, so tell me about, you used the word greenfield and I, and I remember seeing yeah. that. Greenfield, it basically means it's it's not ready for the big leagues. It's it's still you're still investing in it, and uh, it's not sort of fully developed, right? Yeah, the easiest way for for people to understand that would be Molly Corp at their IPO in 2010 was a greenfield project. It was basically a dream, right? Give us some money, and we're gonna make some plans and build a big thing. Um, now we have what would be referred to as a brownfield, which is it's already built, right? It exists. We are operating. We're, you know, we're we're now doing our second stage, and so many of the assets exist, and so it's not like we're starting from scratch. Um, you know, we're 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 operating, and we're just making some changes to some pretty extraordinary assets that currently exist. Right. Okay. So I I have a uh, question. You see, so now you have the rare earth oxide. How much does that sell per uh, metric ton? Yeah. Well, it really depends. The, the, the rare earth industry 
there, there are a number of rare earths. And so when you think about our concentrate product, that then gets broken down into a number of other products. Um, and, and, and so there's NDPR, uh, lanthanum, cerium, and then we also will make a heavy rare earth concentrate. Um, and so th there are a number of different products. The easiest thing for, for your viewers is on, on Bloomberg, there's the Shrapnox index. And that, yeah, that, that's pri price in Ramimbi. Uh, but if you convert that, you know, you can convert that to dollars um, and then you can kind of get the price of NDPR. The price of NDPR right now has actually moved can, quite can, a can, bit. Can I, yeah. uh, 60,000? 60, 60, uh, well, no, it's a, on, right now I think it's 430,000. Obviously this, this will air a little later, but it's a, a, the Shrapnox is 430,000. And so you divide that by a thousand um, and then you take the Ramibi price, which is roughly 6.55. And, you know, you get somewhere in the kind of mid to high 60s per, uh, dollar right now price for NDPR. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 60s. I know because in your report, it said uh, 40. Um, that was written in 2019. But now it's it's gone up um, since then. And it's interesting. Some of your projections have, um, you know, how profitable, how much EBITDA will we have based on the different prices of NDPR. Um, so NDPR is obviously, uh, you know, is used in electric vehicles, which is a huge growth market. Wind turbines, which I think you said is growing seven, eight percent per year. Uh, tell me about what you see going forward about the demand side for NDPR. Well, the big, I, I, I think that there's just so many exciting growth verticals, but, but sort of the, the nearest, most obvious use case, which will also be the, the largest, and, and frankly, just by itself, will, will I think lead to some some pretty extraordinary growth over the coming years is is the electric vehicle right is magnets for the electric vehicle and if you just take that market alone that may right now magnets for evs you know for electrification it's kind of like a approximately 10 percent of existing global mm -hmm. ndpr demand um but that's with ev penetration around you know two maybe approaching three percent goldman sachs actually put out a report yesterday that they expected chinese ev penetration to go to 20% within the next five years by 2025. China's actually said that within 15 years, um, their expectation is that there will be no new sales of internal combustion engine cars. California, New Jersey, you know, obviously we've stated it, Europe has their carbon 2050 goals. And so when you look around the world, I think we're actually gonna see adoption of the electric vehicle a lot quicker than people think. I think there, I think, um, you, there was a great Economist cover story a couple months ago about China as sort of the uh, the new electro state. You know, if you think about mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia as a petro state, and sort of this idea, regardless of your political views, you know, the, the, you can you can debate that all day long. And and and, um, but if you just look at the hundreds of billions of dollars of capital, or actually forget all that, just look at the capital markets, right? Look at regardless of whether you think it's a bubble. Look at the market cap of Tesla. Look at all of the excitement in, in the SPAC universe um, for this. And what you remember that although there's going to be a number of the, the SPACs, I, I would guess that a number of the SPACs will, you know, will ultimately over time um, fail. Right now, they're equitized and growing, and there's a lot of capital. And so when you think of the analogy, it's kind of like the internet in the mid 90s. It's uh -huh. penetration is two or 3%. And so, of course, there's going to be some failures. And of course, there's some very young and experienced people running very large businesses. They'll make mistakes. There'll be some superstars, you know, like with any sort of boom. And so I'm not opining on, on the value of those as far as the markets today, but you have to uh -huh. recognize that the capital markets are telling you 
that this is a boom just getting started. Um, and so, you know, we think that the, the, that that is just such a powerful thing to, to, to say, hey, all of these guys and gals, whoever, um, regardless of whether they're successful or, or not, and or will the traditional OEM strike back in a better way, you know, GM, Volkswagen, whomever, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of capital going into this space. And so I think that the penetration of electric vehicles is just going to dramatically surprise on the upside. But even if I'm wrong, just take Goldman's numbers or Morgan Stanley or whomever you want, look at the math, and you're talking about very quickly over this coming decade, the electric vehicle alone will, will eat up the entire supply of NDPR. And, and that obviously ignores wind turbines and drones and, and many of the other classic uh, use cases. Yeah, I mean, uh, electric vehicles are definitely the future. And in some cases, they're the present. I mean, if you look at Norway, I think over half of all vehicles sold are um, electric vehicles. And your point about they're going to be winners, they're going to be losers, that's definitely true. But I think what uh, is interesting about uh, rare earths and NDPR is that the winners and the losers are going to need NDPR, right? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, as as I've said, it's a picks and shovels play, or um, you know, or it's like selling Levi's to the gold, the you know, the the gold, the people in the gold rush. I mean, yeah. we 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 hope they're all successful. We really do, uh, and we hope hydrogen and electric wins. I don't know if Musk is right or wrong about hydrogen, and there's a lot of investment. You know, I I, I don't know, but I, I I do see, you know, I do see a a, a boom. Um, it's pretty obvious. It's not it doesn't take a, a genius to see to look at um, what's going on out there, and so um, all of that capital is going to be spent, or a lot of it. Um, and so yeah, so we think we think we're in a great position, and. And, um, you know, that's why I'm, I'm focused on the opportunity. I, I'm very excited. And, and I also think that the other thing with that, Jack, is that we're in this period of tremendous disruption. And, you know, to take sort of an old business school case uh, term, uh, there's a lot of innovators dilemma going on out there. If you kind of think of the challenges, for example, Ford, you know, Ford is kind of facing or and I think GM seems to be navigating this really well. But you have look at Tesla, look at their market cap. And they have no legacy business versus the legacy OEMs that make many multiples of the number of, of, of cars, but their, their profitability is going to very quickly collapse in their legacy analog business. And so then the question is, um, which of those enterprises will be able to navigate that? And anyway, some will, some won't. Uh, it's a very hard thing to do. Um, but in all of that, as there's sort of a new uh, landscape arising, and an old one declining, there's just tremendous disruption. There's bankruptcies, there's challenges. And sort of in that chaos is a lot of opportunity. It really is sort of, it is a new landscape forming. And so our vision at MP is, is just by virtue of having this asset that, that gets us in the room, that is very levered on itself, uh, not in the capital structure, but in the price of the commodity, um, to participate in the upside of this boom, but also as a platform, how can we utilize the strategic nature um, to to really sort of create a lot of long-term enterprise value to become a marquee company um, in this landscape that's that's just getting started? So, absolutely. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Um, 
Can we can we talk about uh, China a little bit? Because you know, I, I know that China controls over eighty percent of the rare earth market. They've been very ahead of the curve on electrification, and I actually think they also control over eighty percent of of lithium as well. Um, what can you? you know, I know uh, going on mpmaterials.com, your website, it says that it's critical to your mission statement. Um, it's not just to you know deliver these uh, ingredients for uh, electric vehicles and the future for the world, but specifically to have an American source um, of these materials. What can you what can yeah, you tell me about sure. that? Sure. This so this is so critical for our country and our mission. You know, we say it right there, as you know, and in all our materials, our mission is to restore the full rare supply chain to the United States of America. And right now, our great companies like the Tesla, GMs, Apples of the world. They have to buy this entire supply chain in China, and we'd like to offer them a choice. We'd like to offer them a great American company that can that can you know satisfy some of some or hopefully all one day uh, their supply chain needs. And and I think regard again I, I go regardless of your politics whether it, whether it's Cold War 2.0 or it's just sort of very competitive. What the Chinese have done is is very intelligent, right? They've they've been long term. They've taken control of the upstream of the supply chain and methodically over time they've moved downstream and so look at in fact aside from the SPACs if you think about electrification look at some of these um, Chinese companies listed here in the US whether it's Neo or mm-hmm. um, Chaopeng or or you know um, or Li Auto I mean there's a number of them that are just you know creating that have already created remarkable enterprise value and so there's there are there's a lot of competition in this space and they're they're not after the materials. The Chinese are after the GDP and the jobs, right? They want they want to take over. They want to be Tesla, right? They they're 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 sort of the upstream was a was a nice to have was was sort of a strategic imperative thirty years ago. But they've they've sort of graduated and matured, and now there's a much bigger competitive challenge, which is you know they want to be the the leading uh, country in the world. They want to have the largest GDP, the largest military budget. And so they're after Tesla. They're after Apple. Um, and so, the you know we're we are you know we know our place. We're not of the scale of one of those kinds of companies, but we do think that we serve a really important role. There need to be you know hopefully one, but hopefully more um, scaled American champions you know upstream in the supply chain, so that some of the strategic resources cannot be utilized as a source of advantage, the competition is going to be hard enough, right? And so we just want to be a reliable uh, supply chain partner to those companies. And again, they buy it all in China today. We, you know, that's, that's sort of the current reality. They have no choice. Uh, and, and our mission is to give them a choice and, and to do that uh, competitively. Um, you know, we're, we're, we, we want to do that competitively so we can build a great enterprise uh, and, and create value for them the you know the downstream customers absolutely and right now you sell to china too because you have no choice but you want to you want to change that right yeah yeah so right now as exactly those magnets are made um in china so again the tesla apples of the world they'll buy their magnets there um when when they're you know the the goal is to be able to to sell them the magnets here and so our vision as a company is to is to over time and this will take us a number of years but is to over time um, create that option domestically, and and so I think we're probably a microcosm of an, you're seeing this in a number of industries, and I, uh, you sort of this is sort of this idea of we need to onshore our critical supply chain. We we saw it most acutely 
in March with 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 COVID, obviously, and PPE. Um, but this is critical across industries, and obviously for the rise of that manufacturing spirit in America. And regardless of the of of who's in the White House, and I think, but in particular with the new Biden administration, um, because there's going to be such a big push for electrification, everything we're talking about is getting accelerated. And so, if we want to keep those auto jobs here. We need to have that whole supply chain here. And by the way, that the auto supply chain, it's the single largest private employer in the country, 10 to 14 million jobs. So we, we just want to help right, enable right. that and, and, and create a lot of value for our shareholders um, while we do it. Absolutely. You mentioned the Biden administration, and obviously the Biden administration is going to be more friendly to uh, electric vehicles than the Trump administration. But you actually recently inked a deal with the Department of Defense under uh, the Trump administration, um, I think it was $9.4 million for an investment agreement. So the government is, is it kind of, um, do, you th- do you think that the government is, sees that strategic importance and will be behind your back in the same way that perhaps the Chinese were to their industry, which is why they you know, became, uh, started to dominate? Well, I hope so. And to be clear, I think we can all say that you know, we, we clearly have a very divided uh, political environment today in America, but I think it is, if there are one of the few things that we all agree on, uh, national security uh, and, and sort of the, the competitive threat of, of China from an industrial standpoint is something that's nonpartisan. We need to have American jobs. We need to have these industries. And so I think that when the, the Department of Defense, you know, obviously our work with them is is nonpartisan um, uh, we, we just want to, you know, we yeah, want to yeah, yeah. do right by our company and, 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 and by national security needs. But we actually have two, two um, contracts that we've signed uh, with the Department of Defense. One we disclosed uh, this summer that's related to heavy rare separation. Uh, other than sort of that disclosure, I can't um, say more on that. And then the, the one you just referenced is the $9.6 million grant that's just capital uh, uh, granted to us towards our stage two. DOD understands. Um, Again, you know, see their own words in their press release. Um, the the importance of this supply chain, and so you know, they they kind of reflected that um, with with that award, and you know, hopefully, we'll be able to uh, do a lot of work with the new administration. Uh, and, and I think that actually, uh, what's one of the great attributes, sort of in 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 recent months, if you will, you've seen a number of you've seen a, an executive order out of at a President Trump and presidential determinations about a rare earth magnet supply chain over the past year or two. Uh, there's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of sort of noteworthy um, pronouncements. Um, but as we kind of think about, particularly with the Biden administration and that push on climate change, we're very proud of the fact that we're in California. We're not looking to, uh, rare earth production has historically had a lot of environmental challenges. Again, a plug for Real Vision. You guys did a great job um, in, in it, it's a 20 minute video. I encourage people to, to watch that. It's an outstanding um, piece. Uh, it's kind of talking about some of those challenges. Historically, um, we recycle most of our water. We have dry mm-hmm. tailings. I, I mean, I think you, we don't even need to go into it. We, the, the site was built five to seven years ago in the state of California. So you can imagine the challenges um, that, had to, that had to be overcome to get regulators comfortable. And so we think that the Biden administration will hopefully um, really recognize um, that that we we not only are we sort of uh, quote unquote fuel, you know, we are the feedstock to to the industries of sustainability, but 
we're doing it in a sustainable way, right? In California. And yeah. that's gotta be, that's gotta be something that that people appreciate both both in DC and hopefully investors as well. I certainly do just as as an American and as a human being, um, I take a lot of pride in that our team does too. Yeah, yeah. I um and so that's in addition to the onshoring of supply chains to make sure that we can uh, have a support uh, source of it in America as, as well as just the Western Hemisphere. There is that environmental uh, concern. You know, I think uh, you can see the damage from Chinese um, plants, uh, chi Chinese rare earth mines from um, G GPS, I, I believe. Um, the, and what I understand is that, um, yeah, they don't have those standards as you do in California. And also your mine has in the same way it has higher levels of what you want, rare earths and NDPR, um, it also has lower levels of uranium and thorium, right? The issues with uranium and thorium that you've heard of are mainly associated with a company in Australia, Linus, which is a public company, and they've had some challenges with the Malaysian government. And I'd, I'd again, reference people uh, to that Real Vision video or, or to the web, and that's sort of not my place. But suffice to say, obviously, a site with environmental challenges in Malaysia, which is really the Chinese sphere of influence, that sort of um, ground zero of One Belt, One Road, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's sort of a unique animal. And, and then there are there are some sites in the U.S. that I think are essentially, you know, for lack of a better word, toxic waste dumps where people think there are some rarest there. And so they want to get special um, co-ops or privileges out of the government to take over their liabilities on in the guise of rare earths. And, and what I would say is one of the things that we're really proud of is, is we don't need to, to sacrifice our, our standards as Americans. I mean, we're, we're Americans, we believe in, we have principles and we believe in, in, a, in a lot of things. And, and so we're showing this, we're proving we're profitable at Mountain Pass. Uh, we're gonna build a, a much larger company. And so we're gonna do this in an environmentally friendly way. And, and that's core to our company. And so what I would say is to, the, to people who kind of push on this issue, um, to, to kind of get um, breaks uh, when it comes to environmental standards, I say, you know, no way. Uh, we, we, we will do this in an environmentally friendly way uh, and, and, and we have to. Uh, and, and so obviously we, we're, we're beneficiary of that because um, we're already doing it. Uh, but I think that's really important. And, and I, I don't know, I just can't imagine someone buying um, an electric vehicle uh, feeling very good that the materials that made up that vehicle we're causing, you know, cancer in China or toxic waste dumps or any of that kind of stuff. I think we're past that as a society, um, mm -hmm. and so you know, we we want to shed a light on that. Um, as a total aside, Jack, and and, and this is, yeah, I, I, there's been a big push about ESG investing, right? I think we we kind of all see I was that. Let's bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you were sorry. A good, good segue, right? I, that's yeah, yeah, probably perfect. one of those points in the in the video where you have the minute, you know, the the ESG segue. The thing is, is it's great. A lot of the capital, if you look at where a lot of that's gone, it's gone to software companies, just really sort of the big fang, right? And Microsoft, Salesforce, whatever, great iconic companies. Um, you know, we should all look up to them, but it's very easy um, to pay people a little bit more and hand everyone a latte when you have employees that are six-figure employees, um, you know, very low employee count relative to your, your revenue and enterprise value. But I think that the real impact um, that we're going to see over time from this push on 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 ESG should be to historically, um, you know, more real industries, right? So if we're going to have these materials, let's think about wow, shouldn't we really be allocating our our capital to companies like ours? 
companies like MP Materials, whose mission it is to restore this supply chain um, in an environmentally friendly way, should have a low cost of capital relative to um, the companies that aren't necessarily subscribing to those kinds of standards. And that's really the, the power of ESG investment is lowering the cost of capital for the businesses that are providing the externalities that you want and raising the cost of capital for the businesses that, that are, are um, not. You know, and that's why look at, and again, regardless of where we go from here, look at the valuation of Tesla versus ExxonMobil. And that tells you what you need to know. The, the capital markets today are pricing in a very large externality, positive in the case of Tesla, very negative in the case of Exxon. And then obviously I'm just using them as examples. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as we think about this, um, you know, that, that really should extend across industry. And, and so we, we think we're going to be a big beneficiary of that in the years to come. And by the way, we then have to execute. We have to live by those standards. Uh, and, and we take that very seriously at MP. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, you talked about how much uh, Tesla has been up, how much these electric vehicle companies, these ESG stocks, um, the capital markets have really been believers uh, in, in their stories, their narratives, and particularly their, their ability to grow over the future. Now, MP Materials, it is definitely of that world in terms of the growth story. Um, and yet it, it is an industrials company that you mine stuff from the ground, which is you know, one of the oldest industries in the world. How do you think about that? Yeah. Well, and, and by the way, mining, you know, again, is, is 10% of our cost structure. 90% mm-hmm. is, is really sort of the chemical and separations process. And so that really is um, much more of a challenge. And I think that'll create a challenge for others trying to bring on supply. There'll be a, a multi-year lag sort of given that piece of it. But I, I think we're, we're sort of positioned really well from the standpoint of, as you said, we, we have an asset that's got, you know, this is a real asset, you know, look at, look at the, by the way, come visit us. We, Jack, you come visit, you know, we've got a, a an asset that's, that's. Is that, is that an there. official invite, James? That is an official invite, Jack. I'd love okay. to, to, to tour you around. Um, okay. I'd and, love to do that. Let's do it. And so it is, it is rare, pun intended, haha, uh, <laughs> to have sort of that downside protection of a hard asset that cash flows uh, coupled with sort of that upside new boom leverage. And so we think we've got that um, and so we think that we think that positions us if you're if you're kind of looking for plays uh, in the electrification boom, we think we think we have we're, we're strategically in a great spot and structurally when you have a cash flow positive business with a fortress balance sheet and and, you know, hopefully, uh, by the way, we'll make mistakes. There's no question. Um, but we're, we're a very shareholder focused management team. By the way, I should tell you, um, uh, because I, I do think this is important. I'm, I, I guess I'll put my investor hat back on, but there used to be a rule around my firm that you know we would never buy a stock um, that was that had a management team that didn't want the stock to go up, right? If the management team doesn't want the stock to go up, you know why am I going to try to fight that? Um, and so governance matters. You know the idea of sort of of shareholder value. Obviously, uh, um, again, human beings make mistakes, but just this idea. Um, we're owner operators, so uh, my um, yeah. JHL is the largest shareholder. I'm the largest uh, sh- individual shareholder of the company. Uh, I am highly incentivized to create a lot of value, and so um, you know that's also one of the great things if you kind of think about us versus the predecessor. Um, when you have sort of people who maybe have other motives, um, you know, we we really are our shareholder focus. And by the way, when we set this up, maybe this is a good segue into Spackland, but I was given, just thinking that. Given so, let me do the segue, and then we can do okay. this. Is that if you think about it, if you look at some of these these transactions, um, 
there's you know special governance, um, you know special voting shares, or even just some of the tech IPOs where you have these 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 voting rights carved out or special deals. You know, I take no salary and I have no special voting rights. I am a shareholder uh, just like anyone else. Yeah. And my view is if if I do a poor job, the shareholder should vote me out. You know, we 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 serve at the behest of the shareholders and we don't deserve some special privilege. Our privilege is earned every day by creating value. And I think over time that discipline um, sets up for, um, you know, sets up for at least a sort of hopefully a more a more like-minded value creation management team. I'm, I'm not a big believer in sort of voting rights bestowed on on uh, people just just for the sake of, of of the fact that they founded it or were there early or they're the the son or grandson or great grandson of somebody who founded it. I think that sort of leads to suboptimal results, and so. We, it was really important to us to make sure that every step of the way we we've set ourselves up for for sort of great shareholder governance. I, I jokingly say we we want to be part of the Sam Zell School of Corporate Governance, not the Adam Newman one. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, for that you're speaking the right language uh, of real vision for for the people at home, and I think uh, part of that is you know you are a, a real vision uh, subscriber, which yes. uh, it's great and, always to uh, have you on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so you said no shareholder. Um, no, no special voting rights. One thing I also noticed uh, going through um, your, I don't know if it was prospectus or, or term sheet, was that uh, JHL, yeah, it, it is the managing, um, you still own the majority of the stake. I'd say like 19% was was these extra investors, like the pipe investors, which were uh, Chamath Palihapitiya and Lee Cooperman, uh, both uh, Real Vision guests. Um, and then and then the other chunk was for the public markets, right? So, so yeah. it wasn't like we're just sort of foisting this, um, you know, new company that has zero revenue onto the unlearned masses. No, you have revenue, no debt, and um, yeah, you only sold a little piece. Right. Yeah. And by the way, think of that. Um, you know, if you think about the the, the spectrum of of Chamath and Lee Cooperman, um, obviously both are extraordinarily talented, bright investors, um, but from completely different spheres, right? I think. Lee is, you know, traditional value, and Chamath is obviously much more um, mm. growth-oriented. Um, but to have sort of both of them find our asset to be attractive, I think, really speaks to that the attributes we were talking about earlier of how how uniquely positioned our company is. And so, I think hopefully value people see it. Hopefully growth people see it. Um, you know, I certainly um, am a big believer. Uh, I'm there, and I've I've decided to focus on it. But yeah, currently JHL, um, you know, my my um, historical investment firm owns approximately forty percent, and then um, you know, this is all obviously public. I, I'd rec encourage people to just look at the holders page on Bloomberg or, you know, mm -hmm. look at the public filings and um, JHL owns 40 percent. And then I own, you know, which we actually have uh, separately carved out um, so that I own directly so people can kind of see directly my shareholding. That's another perfect example of of the kind of thing. Um, you know, that at close, we wanted people to sort of see my holdings. And, and there are a number of governance things that are not, it's not just, you know, oh, gee, we don't have special voting rights, but it's our mindset um, that we really want to be transparent um, and, and, and be clear that this is sort of an owner-operated cult, operator culture as chairman, you know, sort of founder, chairman, CEO. I'm also the largest shareholder. Again, I'm going to make mistakes. There's no question, you, you know, but, but I'm going to always have the 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 mindset of what is best for shareholders because you know I'm the lar you know I'm the largest one um, mm -hmm. and so um, and by the way one last thing and 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 this I think does connect and I would encourage people if they're kind of thinking about SPACs is um, we really did set this up 
at the time, um, and I, I think this just sort of speaks to intent, um, to be a great transaction for all stakeholders. You know, we didn't view our pipe investors as like, you know, sold to you, right? We, we, we set up a deal um, and we, we, we got the, the promoter fortress in, that, in, in the case of our deal to take all of their compensation and incentive shares. And so our deal out of the gate had to be successful for, for all stakeholders. And so um, that, that I think hopefully speaks to our, our mindset um, you know, in general. And I think that that will be a key distinguishing factor um, over time is you know, you'll see some of these facts and they were able to get a pipe done at what may ultimately turn out to be a very high valuation and, and you know, sort of, like I say, sold to you guys who they may have mm-hmm. been trying to trade out of or whatever. I feel like the interview that, that we've had, and um, I mean, I'd love to ask you a few more questions, but you know, we are running on an hour. Um, yeah. It's been so great having you on to, to talk in detail because I've, I've seen you, you know, talk to Jim Kramer, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and those, those people are brilliant, but you, you know, they interviewed for you for three minutes. So you could sort of just blurt out the answers that um, you, know, you sort of uh, have, have your talking points, but it's been great talking with you and sort of getting, getting the detail. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. And yeah, it's hard, you know, obviously if you're, you know, it's kind of talking about your company for three minutes that really, you can't, it, it doesn't do it justice. And, and, um, but so I, yeah, I really enjoyed, um, yeah. having a longer conversation with you, Jack. It's, it, it's been fun. Definitely. I mean, the, uh, the, why do a SPAC versus an IPO? That's a question yeah. that, you know, it takes 15 minutes to answer. Um, so yeah. answer it in 30 seconds or less. You know, I'll do it really quickly, actually. It's, yeah, yeah. The, the key aspect is, is sort of, um, it is a form of regulatory arbitrage, time to market and ability to structure creative solutions. And if you think about it, um, uh, a SPAC is a merger, it's not an IPO. And so if you have a high growth company, um, it, it gives you the ability to kind of more, more transparently convey your long-term plans um, and structure different things around your deal that might not otherwise be done in IPO. Now, um, if you think about it, um, people will do just like the internet or any new invention, people are going to do good and bad with that. And so mm-hmm. SPACs are not a bubble. There may be some silly behavior going on in some, and there's going to be some great results in others. Uh, people, it's a, it's a, it's sort of a new category and people are going to do good and bad with it. Yeah. Um, Hopefully well, good in the case of MP we're, 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 we're maniacally set, maniacally set on, on hopefully making this one of the great examples over time. There we go. Um, I think uh, Howard Klein, who's is uh, in the lithium space. Uh-huh. Uh, Ed's doing an interview with him that comes out tomorrow, and he said of of SPACs that they are a bull market vehicle. They, they know, are they're a way to raise capital uh, in bull markets if you if you want to get things done, and that's just that, that, you know we are in a time when you can raise raise capital in a short amount of time, um, and and you want to take advantage of that, and you and yeah. you did. Well, I just so I I'm I'm a fan of Howard, um, but but I disagree with that statement for for the following. If you think about it. Junk bonds before they were junk bonds were, you know, sort of a, a weird category, right? This is a new category. There's no question that, um, you know, insane valuations on pre-revenue concept companies, that's a bull market concept, but that happens in IPOs as well. A SPAC is a structure to bring um, different stakeholders to the table and more creatively provide a solution, a capital solution for a company that wants to get to the public markets. And frankly, I think even if we have a collapse, I think that this will be here with us. Uh, I think it's a, a new category 
again, there's no question that there'll be a lot of promoters that will go by the wayside. But I do not think it's it, I do not think a SPAC in general on its face is like a bull market vehicle. I think it's in bull markets, it can be misused. Um, mm -hmm. But but I do believe that they're here to stay. SPACs, I think that because you, you hear this, you know, people say, oh, SPACs are in a bubble and and or, yeah. you know, SPACs this and that. There's a lot of frothy. There are many frothy things happening in the financial markets. But SPACs as a tool, I think you I think. And again, it's smaller. This is not, I'm not making the direct analogy, but I would look much closer to junk bonds as a historical analogy than I would, you know, like some bubble thing in the sense that it's a new financial tool. It's a new structure. It's going to be utilized very well by some and terribly used by others. And so there'll be some of the crazy things that are happening that, that won't be successful. But I expect over time, you're going to see fees come down in the structure, you know, people will continue to, to engineer out the misaligned incentives and will come up with creative structures to utilize the positive attributes and get rid of the negative ones. And so I think this landscape's here to stay. My way of viewing SPAC is essentially it's a public way of, it's a, a way of bringing venture capital to the public markets. And that's really all it is because uh, the public markets can now invest in more early stage companies in the same way that companies like Uber were delayed because they should have gone in an IPO much, much um, earlier than they did. Because by the time that they uh, went public, they were yeah. massive. It's an amazing point. Let's put it this way. Um, you know, 20 years ago, when, when I started my career, uh, um, there were double the number of public companies. Uh, and, you know, I think a quarter as many hedge funds, right? So fast forward, and, and now there's half as many public companies, four times as many hedge wow, funds. And great. so we've seen, and so if you think about it, when, when it's all comes down to supply and demand, right? When there's demand, Wall Street figures out a way to, to supply what ultimately the market demands. And the, the market is demanding more public companies. And so the challenge with very high growth public companies is that if you have a very long dated cash flow stream and you want to IPO and you make a forward looking statement, there's no safe harbor. And so if you, and by the way, again, this can be utilized by charlatans. Sorry, no, no safe harbor from regulators? Forward-looking statements. So in other words, if I have uh, battery X, some new battery for electric mm -hmm. vehicles, and it was invented, you know, wherever, uh, by great universities and great blue chip people, whatever. Runs on NDPR. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, runs on, um, powers a motor that will, that will move via NDPR. Yeah, but yeah, if, yeah. If, if you have a, a five-year-out EBITDA target, or five years out, I can do X of EBITDA. Um, if you make that statement as an IPO, you can be sued over that later on because you made a forward-looking statement and there's no safe harbor for that, right? Now, if you do a SPAC and you make that statement to a sophisticated management team in, in, the, in part of a merger, um, that's the fiduciary uh, judgment of the board um, that, that can be disclosed and it, you're not necessarily liable for that. So for cases of high growth, from the standpoint of a company, it is much more efficient and, and effective to go public via a SPAC because you can get more value for what you believe to be value that's coming over a longer dated period. Now, obviously, the, the, the reality is, is that charlatans or you know, bad people or can utilize that to make up things and 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 you know that there's some of that that's certainly going on in the SPAC landscape today, but there are also some outstanding future companies that are being able to get to market quicker because you know even thoughtful people obviously don't want to 
mis mislead people or be sued over a statement that they made in good faith. And so the SPAC allows a lot of these companies, as you said, that might be more nervous about going to market. It allows them to get to market more quickly um, in, in sort of a good faith way. And, and so again, I think that that is a net positive um, for the capital markets. I think it's a net positive for capital formation and for getting a lower cost of capital to frankly, electrification and some of these areas where we want a lower cost of capital as a society. So again, I go back to, this is a good mechanism for capital formation. Now, again, like any boom, there's going to be fraud, right? The internet boom had it, the gold rush had it, there's fraud in any boom. That pets. doesn't mean, right, pets.com. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of it. And there's going to be, you know, a lot of sad stories. And that's unfortunate. But I do really believe that there will be some thoughtful people who will utilize this structure um, well. And so, again, I think that's the key distinction that people don't fully appreciate. And I also think that in good times and in bad, now that this invention is here, and this idea that, that, that thoughtful people can be more transparent and forward-looking, and thoughtful institutional investors and, and or other sponsors can be on the other side of the table, that mechanism um, is here with us to stay. The promote and the structure and, and how things happen may change but I do that. I do believe that that mechanism is is net very positive um, for capital markets, yeah. and we'll we'll probably see more public companies as a result, um, which is what you know the market demands. Absolutely. I mean, that's good. I mean, the major problem in the in the markets has been um, the declining number of, of of publicly traded stocks, and that actually just wait, right? <laughs> just wait. To, uh, uh, the, the twenty fifteen uh, uh, grants interest rate observer conference, which is on all these um, platform companies that just eat eat each other up. Um, but that's we'll, ha we'll, that, we'll have to discuss that on the the next uh, one. Yeah, about SPACs. I think sun sunlight. It said that sunlight is the best disinfectant, uh, even if it's not always effective. You can by definitely looking at the venture capital space. I mean, there's a lot of rotting in the dark, so to speak. If you look at um, if it's company a company like WeWork, as as you mentioned, you know, that never was traded um, publicly, but there were um, things that uh, are very similar to what the, the worst companies are doing um, in SPACs now. So. Um, my last question, I don't want to necessarily say my last question, but my yeah. last question is, um, what, what is it like? So Fortress uh, issued the, this SPAC. Fortress Value. Yeah, Fortress Value yeah, acquisition sorry, sorry. was the SPAC. Fortress Value acquisition. Now we're MP again. We're MP. And what, you know, NYC, just type it in. Yeah, yeah MP. So, 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 so they issued at $10, which is standard for a SPAC now. Now MP, which it became on November 17th, right? That was, was the, the close, yes. It was the yep. close, yes. Um, okay, it now trades. Um, I actually don't know the exact number, but in the in the low twenties, uh, right? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I've been talking to like? you for the last hour, so I haven't looked at the stock, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can tell me. Yeah, but anyway, so it's roughly yeah, it's, around what, there. What's yeah. it like to have a stock, uh, you know, appreciate that much? And you know, I saw it yesterday. Um, it was down five percent. For a normal CEO, that would be problem you know, but like it, the stock is so volatile that five percent is nothing because it probably was up 20 percent you know a day before what, what's it like to have a stock so volatile not only with you know your investment firms capital is tied up with that but the fact that you know you know all the people who trusted in you uh th that's their investments and savings as well what's that like yeah so it's a two-week-old experience for me although i guess within the SPAC days um but i am such a large holder that uh you know it really we have to execute I mean, I, I, this doesn't really work for me well unless I create a great company over time or create a lot of value. Um, you know, in, in the old days in liquid markets, you could kind of be in and out of things, but you know, I'm, a, I'm a very large holder and so I've got to create a lot of value. And so, look, 
anyone who tells you they're not, they don't notice their stock price would be a liar. You know, obviously I notice it and, you know, we want, we want to make sure that we, we have a, a great company that, that performs well. Um, but I'm, I'm trying not to, not to be impacted by it. It's, you know, markets are going to do what they're going to do. Um, we're going to execute it. But by the way, having a, a fortress balance sheet, having the structure that we have, um, I think just sort of enables us to be, to be long-term focused and, you know, we'll, I'm obviously very pleased that we've had a successful outcome for our stakeholders. I think if anything, it just shows that we, you know, when we, when we were kind of considering this, you know, er, earlier this year, that it was very important to us to put together a structure that was good for people. I think we delivered that result. I think that the people who entrusted in us um, got the outcome that they wanted so far. And so if we can kind of keep doing what we've done on the operational front, and then from a capital market standpoint, um, you know, with with lots of standard ups and downs that happen in markets, I think we'll have happy people. Um, so I'll try not to have I'll try not to freak out looking at the the day to day. Yeah. So so you um, you are a believer in the uh, Warren Buffett's uh, dictum that you should essentially buy a stock and never look at the price. But you know that it, that's uh, very difficult because you own a plurality of shares and you also are that company CEO. So it's 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 kind of impossible. But but you sure. you are long term oriented. Yeah. No one. I think never. Yeah. I think that's a little exaggerated to say never look at the price. Um, you know, you have to in today's day and age. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. For sure. But yeah. I mean, we're 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 a very large shareholder, and um, you know, we'll, we're focused on the long term. That's how we we you know we we need to be long term greedy, as the saying goes. Right. Right. Um, well, I want. To ask you to close by asking you about, about a big macro call that has nothing to do with um, rare earths or um, MP. What, what what do you have to say about that? Wow, that's such a that's a tough one. Well, no, I I, I do think that I mean I get I I guess um I guess this may have a little to do, but but I I, I believe it. If I kind of look at the market landscape today, um, I I think that we are. A, on the precipice of a new leadership, you know, we we sort of had um, a number of years, over a decade of a bull market in in technology, and so I do think that regardless of sort of what the, you know, as the the new president comes in and whether we see infrastructure or not, um, I, I think that we're going to see because of actually this electrification transition. I do think that sort of industrials, materials, this whole transition will be a key area. Um, a key theme to think about, um, where you you have a significant segment of 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 companies that are going to be impacted to the negative and to the positive. And so there's going to be some disruption of that, and that will create sort of um, a new bull market in some respects. And then I think that there are just some of these, you know some companies in in sort of the last bull market that are just, you know you have some of these SaaS companies that are outstanding, but they traded sixty, seventy times revenue. And just mathematically, it's impossible to have, a great result. You can have an okay result. You might be able to preserve your capital if interest rates stay at zero and inflation, you know, is what it is. But but when you're when, when you have those kinds of values, if you really want to have a great result, like that, that just sort of is mathematically impossible. So if you're if you're looking for significant compounding, I would say, you know, I, I focus on this theme. Um, mm-hmm. And, and and that has nothing to do with MP. If 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 I can call that, can I can I can that count? Yeah, yeah. No, that that does have nothing. So yeah. long materials, long industrials. Would that suggest that you maybe? And again, obviously not investment advice. And this is not what you're saying. What you're doing, but uh, 
short sort of the, the snowflakes of the world? I, I think to some respect, it's a supply and demand thing, right? Which is- Asset the, shortage? The, the, it's asset shortage. And ultimately, it's, I believe it's sort of a reach for duration, right? And so if you think about mm -hmm. it, the ultimate long duration asset is something that is kind of like destroying capital, right? <laughs> I mean, if you think about something that, um, you know, has a very long, utilizes capital and very long duration, you know, super high growth, um, that those are sort of the longest duration. So when you think about these companies you said, and I, I don't, I haven't looked closely yeah. at Snowflake, yeah, yeah, but, but, but there's a number of them um, trading at these, at these multiples. And if you, if, you know, one slight change in, in the market's expectation around duration, and I just think you get more of that, um, you know, you get more of that transition. And then once, again, the regime hasn't changed. And so right now people feel so safe. Um, they, you know, even every dip is to be bought. And, um, but eventually the regime changes and, and that when the cost of capital changes and there's lots of people off sides, um, that's when you sort of lead to big secular changes. Um, but again, by the way, I've been very surprised this has gone on. Obviously it goes on because the scale of, of, of money printing, um, mm -hmm. but I do believe prices have gotten to such a degree that duration is so high for these assets that I just, I don't get the bull case of owning them, even if you think rates are gonna stay low and you think these companies are gonna grow at really nice rates, eventually grow sl slows and just do the forward math of what you think the enterprise value can be and then discount that back. And you know, it's, it's hard, it's still hard to kind of justify some of that, that math. And, and as more supply comes, you know, more and more supply comes to market and, and uh, capital will find different homes. But you know, obviously it's hard to fight central banks. I think that's a really interesting case. I think a lot of the investors that we're speaking to on Real Vision are um, flirting with that view and be becoming more comfortable with it, even if they believe, uh, as they sometimes do, that rates will stay, uh, or real rates will stay negative for, uh, for a long time. Um, I know I said that was my last question, but someone in, uh, from Real Vision actually uh, asked, asked me to ask you this, which is, do you ever think that there will be, and if so, when, um, sort of a future, a regulated futures market uh, trading for uh, rare earths. I know if on, on Bloomberg, you forget the, what the uh, function is, MLP? It's the Shrapnox index. Okay, so it, so it already exists for NDPR. No, 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 it doesn't. The, the index is on Bloomberg. It's actually an outstanding question. Uh, I do. I, I believe it will exist one day. Yeah, that will probably save a, a few headaches uh, for you. Sure. Yeah, yes. <laughs> All right, well, James, Thank you so much. You've been so generous, not just with your time, um, but with your knowledge and your insights. You know, having on a CEO of uh, you know a, a rare earth mine that that uh, is very uh, going to be fueling um, electric vehicles, um, the 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 future, really the future of modern technology. Um, that is so powerful. But then also, um, you did it via a way uh, a, a SPAC, which is sort of sort of hot in the news. So that that is so great to cover. But I think the most important thing is that you are yourself an investor. So you approach these issues uh, and you look at them through the lens of an investor, whereas most CEOs who you know, recently went public, they may have a certain agenda. They may they look at it from a certain view, but it's great to have someone who can you know, put the hat of a former hedge fund manager on and really share that analysis. So yeah. it's been wonderful having you on. Thanks so much. Thank Jim. you, Jed. That's very kind of you. I appreciate it. And obviously, as you've said, I'm a subscriber and I, I, I love watching Real Vision. So. Um, it's been an honor and thank you and talk to you thank soon. You.
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.